You're listening to Passions and Prologues, a literary podcast where each week I'll interview an author about a thing they love and how it inspires their work. I'm your host, Adam Sokol, and if this is your first time joining in, thanks so much for being here. If you've been here for a while, thanks for coming back. Today's episode is a big one. It is with children's author Cornelia Spellman, who has sold millions of copies of her exceptional books all about emotions, things like When I Feel Good About Myself, When I Feel Jealous, When I Feel Sad, When I Feel Scared. They are really, really important books for children to understand and process the emotions that they're going through and learning to comprehend them perhaps for the first time. I wish I would have had these books when I was younger. I was a very emotional child and I think these would have helped a lot. Cornelia has a new book coming out or that has come out. It is a memoir titled Missing and it is a beautifully written portrait of a mother and her family. She kind of looks at her own mother's life in this way that I think everyone will really understand and be able to resonate with. The conversation that we have today uh, really is the core and was the jumping off point for her writing this memoir. It's all about a, not specifically a family heirloom, but a thing that was passed down from generations. And it's something that over time acquired meaning in an unexpected way for Cornelia. And it's something I've, I thought a lot about during this conversation because I was thinking back to in my parents' house, which I happen to be recording this episode in, thinking back to all the things that as I would walk around the house as a kid, I would see that my parents probably didn't think anything of collecting them at the time. But when I think back at them, I remember them as like key components and core aspects of my childhood. So I feel like everyone has those things in your your parents' houses, whether they're dolls or a menorah or a holiday decoration or a vase, something that you know you don't realize is extremely important until down the line. So I think I think you'll really appreciate this conversation. Before we get to that, I want to give you a book recommendation. I just finished The Lincoln Highway by Amor Towles. I know. A lot of people have read this since it came out. I think it has like over a million copies sold and pretty sure it was a a Jenna book club pick. Um, But I had just read it and I I really enjoyed it. It wasn't exactly what I was hoping for, but it was very delightful. It's set in the mid-1950s and it follows brothers Emmett and Billy Watson as they're planning to leave their home in Nebraska and go find their mother in California who has left them after their father died. And they get sidetracked almost immediately and end up going basically 1,500 miles in the opposite direction to New York City. And um, they talk a lot about Homer's Odyssey in in this. And I don't think it's based on the Odyssey, but it has a lot of similarities. And uh, you'll understand if you haven't read it yet when you do what I mean. So it's a it's a little bit of a coming of age to, uh, story. It's a little bit of a on the road type uh, adventure, hero's journey type of a story. Uh, but it follows several different people's points of view. And I think you'll like it. I, I enjoyed it. Said It was slightly different than I expected, but I really did enjoy it. If you would like some custom book recommendations from me, you can always, always, always reach out to me at passionsandprologues at gmail.com. All you have to do is show me a a rating or review of the podcast that you left uh, wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also send me the things that you're passionate about. And every single month I will do a giveaway where I will send a bookshop.org gift card to someone that happens to send me their 
passions. Uh, one more quick shout out. Uh, over the weekend, I did a macaroon cooking baking class with my niece, uh, a local uh, shop, and the two people that we were paired up with, one of them happens to be the co-host of the very popular Harry Potter podcast, Swish and Flick. So uh, that her name is Tiffany, and she was delightful. And if you aren't familiar with Swish and Flick, go check it out. Again, really, really popular Harry Potter podcast, and they do a lot of cool stuff over there. And it was kind of happenstance that we happened to be at the same place at the same time and in the same group making macarons. And we bonded over our shared love of the Harry Potter books. Okay, that's enough housekeeping. That's enough recommendations. I am not going to have you wait around anymore. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Cornelia Spellman on Passions and Prologues. Hi, my name is Sara, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. Well, Cornelia, I am so excited to have this conversation and, and so thankful that you decided to join me today. So what is the passion that you have that we're going to be discussing? I'm thrilled to be able to talk about it because I don't know that many people who, well, I think actually everybody's interested in it, but they don't often talk about family objects, not so much heirlooms as some, the sometimes quirky or very ordinary objects that are so fascinating to me. And I think I've always been interested in them, but perhaps I got a really big kick in the rear about it when my grandmother died. And this was not a grandmother that I knew well at all. In fact, she's mentioned in my book, Missing. Her name was Corny. When she died, we got suitcases full of objects. And when my great aunt Maud died, because my mother was the only child, we got suitcases full of objects. So, for instance, there was an evening bag of my grandmother's that still had tobacco pieces in it and uh, a Kleenex with lipstick on it. You know, it was like, wow, this is just it's almost like a Aladdin's lamp or something that that you rub it or you touch it and you, you're transported back into another time and place. So our house is just full of these sorts of things. And um, of course, a lot of them I can't get rid of. I did actually give that pocketbook away, but I gave it to my daughter and she was completely thrilled to have it. It was her great grandmother's. So I'm also fascinated by these types of things. Like um, my my mom growing up had these plates that were painted yes. like Norman Rockwell paintings. Yes. Oh, nice. Yeah. And they were, they were they're like reprint. They're not like the, the original, they'll be wonderful if they were the originals. But it's one of those things where I think my sister has them now. And like my mom is still alive and well. Like I, I'm literally, I told you I'm recording from, from their house right now. But uh -huh. 
it's one of those things where I saw it on my childhood and like it kind of never thought twice about it but then now that they're not there I'm like oh that was a thing that was like probably there's probably a story behind there so you know, one of the things you've, you've written a whole memoir that we're going to get into a little bit but there is a very specific kind of keepsake that you have that sort of sparked your interest right yes right you're talking about my grandfather's nameplate his mm-hmm. brass nameplate and um my mother kept it and when i and, and i knew it was very precious to her i knew that her father whose name was sam samuel andrew schneider and the the nameplate says sa schneider in in brass i knew that she kept it because he meant a lot to her i knew that he had died when she was a child but really i didn't know any details at all and i didn't even know how old she was when he died now maybe she told me and i was too young to be interested but that sat on my desk for the longest time that until i suddenly thought that i'm going to find out the whole story it was part of my finding out the whole story about what happened to my mother in her life to cause her to end in such a sad way but also to find the whole story and i was able to find the whole story of his death and i traveled to iowa i found the bank where it had sat on his desk and um found, went to newspaper archives and found his grave and he meant a lot to me and you might ask how could he mean a lot to me since he died in 1918 <laughs> so i would love to i love to kind of expand on that but, but first how do you go about starting that journey again I, before i start recording I, I told you this is something I'm also really, really interested in. Like, I, I really only know my family through my grandparents, and then like beyond there, my, all of my grandparents passed away when I was pretty young. So there, was, there just wasn't a lot of um, really. Neither side of the family has like a, a family historian, I guess, that I'm very close to that would be able to kind of trace things further back from that. So when you're, when you're looking at this nameplate, what is the kind of, I guess, like investigative journalism that you started doing to figure out who this person was well you know when i started it adam the internet was not really active at all so i had to do it from scratch i couldn't just google it but for instance i knew well I, i'm not sure how i found out that where he died i think i must have gone to iowa first i mean you know my husband and i took two trips and then i took another one to iowa because i wanted to see the places because the the houses and I had scrapbooks and stuff from my family so that was my evidence of some some of it so I knew the addresses the cities in in the not cities the little towns in Iowa where they lived and so we traveled to see them and while I was there I went into the newspaper archives and I found on the front page of the Mason City Globe Gazette in 1918 the story of of my grandfather's death so once I knew when he had died and that he had died in chicago of all things which is where i live i went to the vital records office in downtown chicago oh that was such a moment and i i wrote down you know i filled out a form for his name and the date of his death and i sat down and waited it's like you know it was like the driver's license office it was just a big loud you know crazy office and i sat there with my heart beating a million times a minute and waited and they called my name and and handed me his death certificate 
And so on that was even more information. And every bit of information you get leads you to find more information. And if you like detective stories, which I do, and I think everybody likes treasure hunts, that's really what it is. Writing a memoir about your family is like a treasure hunt. So what made you want to go down this memoir path now? So people... I, you know, people listening in will almost certainly recognize your name. Like you've literally sold millions of children's books and, you know, you, you have this wonderful way of writing so that children can feel like they're seen and they're understood. And that's nice of you to say, thank you. Absolutely. And uh, your books have meant a lot to me as a person who my entire life has been a very emotional person. These books are things that I relate to even now in my mid thirties. So, but I'm, I'm wondering you know, what made you want to go from, you know, writing these, again, like very successful books for for children to saying, okay, I, I do want to tackle this because this is clearly something that you've been passionate about for a really long time now. Yeah. Well, really, Adam, it, some of it had to do with life stages. So the year that I turned 50, my daughter left for college and I wasn't actively working as a therapist anymore. And so I bought two used filing cabinets and I started organizing all the family papers because I'd always been like you, I'd always been interested in all this stuff. So I had letters and papers and birth certificates and every photographs and everything. And so I organized them and I just was happy as a lark working on this project to organize it. But then also less happy was my wish to figure out what happened to my mother. So she was, in in the pictures that I have of her, she was a very pretty, well, not pretty, interesting looking person, a very vital, very vivid kind of person. And she was healthy and strong and smart and And yet when I knew her, that is to say the last 10 years of her life, you know, when I was, from the time I was about 10 or 12, I guess, she was ill. And she was a very, very heavy smoker. She smoked from the morning, in the morning from the time she got up till the time she went to bed. And she had a bad cough all the time I was growing up. I could, I remember being in a school play and I knew she was in the audience because I could hear her cough from behind stage. And then she got emphysema, uh, a lung disease, and she never quit smoking. And she smoked herself to death. And she died at the age of only 63 from lung disease. And she was depressed and there were a lot of problems in in her family uh, with my oldest brother. And I thought, what happened? you know, what happened to her? And because I had worked as a therapist and because I understood child development by then much better than I would have, I think, otherwise, and because I'd been a mother, I began to understand that it was probably the impact of her father's sudden death. And so I wanted to start there and figure that out. And I believe I did. I mean, you could argue, well, you know, how could you possibly prove that his death was the cause of her problems? Well, it wasn't the only cause. But when children have a traumatic loss, as she did, of this unexpected, completely unexpected death of a parent who probably was the more loving parent, because her mother was quite cold and remote and judgmental. And my mother was an only child. So I think in a way, you know, all my children's books that you mentioned are intended to prevent 
the kinds of problems with children uh, having losses and never being able to talk about them or never being able to talk about their feelings. And my mother smoked instead of feeling. Yeah. That, that's how I understand it. This, I had pretty close to home. I, when I was growing up, I had a, a really close friend and he and I were present when his uh, father unexpectedly had a, a stroke and passed away. And mm-hmm. um, I think we were 11, maybe 10 years old at the time. And we went to what I now know was like, was therapy. And, but for us, it was just like, we thought we were going to almost like a, a day camp or something where we would uh-huh. kind of talk about feelings and draw, draw and things like that. But then they went for a little while. I mean, our, you know, our parents did the absolute best for us. And like, I'm really proud of how I turned out. My, my friend is, he has had like, some issues in life and I know a lot of it stems from whether it's pent up anger or pent up frustration or whatever it might be. But like, I think you're right. Like, I, I do think, while maybe you this many years out can't officially diagnose that's what happened to your mother. But I, I would imagine with the experience that you have in your entire career, like these things are really how people cope, like whether it is smoking or alcohol or, you know, some people turn to art, whatever it might be, like there is a void there that you're, you have to try and fill, I would imagine. Well, turning to art, of course, would be a healthy adaptation. And, you know, addiction is not just mental for most people. It's also physical. People are born with a tendency to alcoholism or they can get a physical dependence on it or, or other drugs. But if there's someone in our life that we can talk to, honestly, and that will be with us, no matter how we feel, that they'll take it, whatever we have to say, they'll take it, we'll be okay. That I strongly believe. I mean, the only exception would be some mental illnesses that are, again, physically based. And so just talking with somebody might not be enough for them or or depression where people often would need medication too. But the talking and listening is, in, in my experience in life, the key to healthy life. Yeah, I, I mean, I will say I'm a massive proponent of therapy. I've been going to therapy basically weekly for the last like eight months or so. And it has helped me so much, not only in the ability to speak with someone about what's going on in my life and you know how it's affecting me and learning to better understand that like cause and like my, the things that I do don't cause other people to feel a certain way. Like it's actions and reactions and all these different things. But more specifically, it's helped me better, I think, better communicate with my family. Like, I can kind of understand where mm. they're coming from and things a lot better. And, you know, that I can understand when I'm saying something. And if it, if they're getting frustrated, I can better understand why. See, I, I fully agree with you about how important it is just to be able to talk to someone about certain things. And I guess I'm curious to kind of connect that to missing, to like pull it, connect it to the memoir you're writing without having people to talk to who were around in these situations, like how did you get that depth and color around the story? Um, Was it really just finding more and more articles and and letters and things like that? Or were, were there ways that you kind of, I guess, like coped with learning all of these things while you were going? Uh, I'm I'm not sure I understand your question. Maybe you could rephrase it. Yeah. So while you were writing this memoir, or I guess researching this memoir, I am assuming that there weren't really 
many people for you to be able to talk to about their experiences uh, with your mother or your your grandpa, who, like you said, had passed away in the early 1900s. So how were you going about creating the, like writing down the story? Was it really just the different pieces of information you were able to find or were there ways that you were able to kind of flesh out the story even further? Well, it took me a very long time. Uh, many, many years to write it because it was such a psychological and emotional journey, not only finding out the information, but processing it. I mean, for instance, when I started off, I couldn't, I couldn't remember until I got my mother's death certificate, the exact date of her death. I wasn't even sure of the exact year because it had been so upsetting and and I had had difficulties in my own life after that and was a single mother and you know there was so much to deal with that it wasn't until I turned 50 really that I could turn around and look back and try to make sense of a lot of things that happened but I did have my my husband uh, of 41 years he was certainly a great help to talk to and I do remember one occasion when I came to him crying and sat on his lap and cried uh, again about all the sad things that had happened in my family. And he said, I really hope, Cornelia, that this book will exorcise them for you. And it did in many ways, because I think making sense of things that seem chaotic is a really important coping strategy. And for me, the filing cabinets, you know, filing cabinets, I just think are one of the greatest inventions in the world because you can keep everything straight. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so being able to organize, I'm sure it's a, it's a question of gaining control by organizing and researching and writing. You're gaining control over a situation that you had no control over. And then also certainly I've been to therapy myself most good therapists, I certainly hope, have been to therapy themselves. So, but, you know, good friends or a loving spouse or partner um, are awfully important. So we talked about the fact that this whole journey of the book really started with this, this nameplate. And I'm curious, I remember when my, um, my grandmother and my, my mom or my dad's side of the family passed away, she had had dementia for a lot of my life. So I never really got to know her. When she passed away, my aunt said, Hey, Adam, grandma had all these old books. And I know that you're a very literary person. Would you like to kind of live through them? Absolutely. And so I, I always have loved Russian literature. Um, Even like when I was in high school, it made made no sense why I was reading like the brothers Karamazov at 16, Mm -hmm. but I really always loved those books. And I was able to look through my grandmother's books and I discovered like she had all of these old Russian novels and they were, you know, mm-hmm. they were like copies she bought from the library. So they weren't like, it wasn't like they were worth anything, but they were worth mm-hmm. a lot to me. Cause I was like, Oh my gosh, my grandmother was reading you know, the plays of Ibsen or, you know, stories by Tolstoy. And so to me, like those, I still have those again, they're just you know, really worthless tattered versions, but to me, they mean a lot. So while you were kind of, you know, kind of going through and, organizing all of these things in addition to the nameplate like were there other you can call them heirlooms or keepsakes that you discovered that are really sentimental to you now oh many but I, I wanted to say about your story that it's such a good example Adam of how you know by reading the books that your grandmother read and that were important to her it was a way to get to know her 
because you could see what she was interested in and you're literally reading the words that she was reading. So I, I can really understand how that makes sense. And I, I have, in fact, some prayer books of both my mother and grandmother and, you know, there would be bookmarks in them. And I, so I was so curious, why did they bookmark this? I wonder why they bookmarked that. Um, but, oh, I have so many keepsakes photographs a lot of photographs. And I remember even as a child, I was the one who would collect them and write in pencil on the back when they were and else my father about them. I, I remember doing that for, from a very young age. Um, I have um, pieces of silverware, like I have a spoon that belonged to my grandmother, Corny, and it's just a beautifully made old silver spoon and it says her name on it. And in those days, among some people, you know, they would make silver spoons as kind of like a, a graduation present or a, a some other birthday present. And I do have a lot of old books, also some of them when I was a child that are precious to me. But my mother's possessions, though, you know, it's funny the things that can have meaning. I kept her eyeglasses for a long time. And that was kind of creepy, really, because the idea of glasses with sightless eyes, you know, the person's dead. Mm -hmm. it, it kind of freaked me out and I eventually got rid of them, but I had kept them because I was with her when she died. And um, a more pleasant kind of heirloom was an old bracelet she that she had and it was just costume jewelry. But I can remember her saying, oh, I love this. Look at this beautiful color. It was a kind of green fake stone. And um, my daughter played with that bracelet and my granddaughter played with that bracelet. So even though it's not something that's valuable monetarily, mm -hmm. it's something that conveys some sense of, of the person. But really, the whole house is filled with, with objects which have meaning either to my family or to, to me, including old furniture. And I thought recently, well, our house looks like an old person's house. And I thought, well, yeah, because we are, we're old and our furniture's old and our life was, you know, our life happened in a different time. And, and, you know, I have my great grandmother's table and in the drawer on the bottom of the drawer, there's written the name Ferguson in pencil, because that was one of the family names. Somebody from way back, wrote that in there. I love that stuff. I love that so much. I The one that I have is my, my grandpa was in the Navy and I have his like, yeah. sailor's hat. And oh, like, great. it's so interesting to me just because it's so small. Like it doesn't <laughs> fit even, it doesn't fit my, my dad's head. It doesn't fit mine. And so to me, like it's that ability to understand the size. of. Oh, that's grandpa. a really good example. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, I never met this man. He, he passed away before I was born, but like, I can picture what he looked like and, and everything because of the size of this hat. Yes. Yeah, that's great. So I, I love to ask, like, once you have collected all of the information, I always like to ask people who have written nonfiction when they know it's time to start writing and stop researching. Was it for you, was it something that you were writing along the way? Or was there a moment where you said, like, okay, I have as much of a story as I can possibly 
Oh, there, so. there were many, many moments. I mean, for me, it was, it was gathering the information and going off in a lot of different directions. And I think the biggest challenge in writing the book was that I had so much material. Mm-hmm. Which story would I tell? Like I had one friend who said, oh, I would have written a whole book about your brother. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, that was, that was not what I was interested in. I was interested in the stories about my mother. And um, I, I think for me, it was a process of gathering and writing, gathering and writing, gathering and writing. And then also really trying to, for any piece of writing, trying to really hone in on what, what exactly, what is your preoccupation here? What, what's going on here? What are the almost um, the jewels that you're you're putting together. And I use a thesaurus often because words will help me so much. Like I had a whole sheet of different words related to the word missing. What was missing? What was recovered? Recuperation, rehabilitation, healing, empty, you know, all different kinds of words all the way around. That's how I eventually ended up with the title missing because one of the earlier titles had been the faint sound of a human heart that had come from a newspaper article about a, an earthquake in Mexico City and how the rescue dogs listened for the faint sound of a human heart. I thought that was such a touching image. And I thought that's what I was doing in writing this book. I was listening to understand my mother's heart. How do you feel now having written it and having it out in the world? I'm so happy to be able to talk about it. Because it's, uh, you know, it's obviously not a book that's like a, just a fictional book about a story that's not related to me. Although, of course, I'm sure everybody's fiction is, you know, in one way or another related to them. Um, but I feel, I would say I feel finished with her particular story. But I'm not finished with all the things around it. And in fact, I'm writing another memoir now, which is definitely related to it. And um, that's been really fascinating for me. I'm very glad I didn't get rid of those files because I have so many filing cabinets, Adam. (laughs) I got two more. I have four filing cabinets. Well, I will say, so people will be able to see this, but right behind you, there is a filing cabinet. And I mentioned I'm at my parents' house right now. I'm going to turn my camera over a little bit. There's literally a filing cabinet. Uh, And a red one. Yeah, it's it's like orange. Um, Orange, I like it. See, here's a little tiny one over my shoulder. (laughs) Yeah, my um, my That's father before he, yeah before he retired, he was a, a State Farm insurance agent, and they uh, before everything got digitized, they had these. He had, oh my gosh, thinking back to his office, I bet there were twenty of these in there at least. And so I think yeah, he eventually can't have too many. <laughs> I, I think he eventually sold most of them, but it is funny. This is I'm sitting in his uh, his kind of office, and he does uh-huh. he still uses it. You're absolutely right; it's super helpful for him. <laughs> I'm also curious, and this might be a weird question or a very quick answer. Does writing these memoirs, does it feel in any way like writing the children's books that you that you've written in the past? Or does it feel just like a wholly different experience for you? It's not wholly different. I think it's definitely related. I'm not sure I understood when I began writing the children's books, because the first one was 1996, I think. 1998. I'm not sure I understood when I began. Of course, I didn't know there was going to be that I was going to do a whole series at that point. But I realized that I was writing them for my mother, 
in some ways. I was writing them for the children that I had worked with in therapy. I could see a very plain need. And I was well aware that as a child, I could have used them. Any child could use knowing more about emotions and how to deal with them. But then I then I saw, oh, I see. It's so related because my, again, the jewels that one thinks about or that one writes about or that are one's themes are the same in the children's books as they are in the memoir. That is how talking and listening help. Every single one of those books tells a child, talk to somebody or be close to somebody. And this is how we can, this is how we manage feelings. We tell somebody, we have a feeling in our body, we tell somebody and we get comfort and direction. And then we know how to manage it. So it's really all of a piece. That's such an interesting way to think about it because I think it sounds like, at least having this conversation with you, that you do, you said you feel like this, you kind of told this part of the story. And you do sound like you're very much at peace, which I imagine having spent so much time working on a memoir, uh, I would imagine you would have to feel at peace having put it out in the world. But does it feel, and maybe this is, again, maybe this is a quick answer because of the fact that you're working on a second memoir. But I've had a lot of people tell me when they spend a lot of time writing a book and they put it out into the world, it's almost like they've lost a part of themselves because that thing is no longer theirs. Was was there that feeling of like loss putting this out into the world or was it because you have another one you want to work on and another story you want to tell? It was mainly just like, okay, I'm at peace with this and it's time to move I, I understand that feeling of loss because it is such a... Um, it's such a part of you when for somebody who's written a book, but it feels like a gain to me rather than a loss because it gives me the opportunity to connect to more people like with you today, right? We can talk about things that aren't necessarily about the book, but that are about the book because the book is about life and how people relate to each other. I was aware, and I, in one of the last chapters, when I took my mother's diaries, and I forgot to mention those, by the way, in terms of heirlooms. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Three diaries from when she was a little girl and then a teenager. But when I took them to the Schlesinger Library on the History of Women in America, which is where they live in perpetuity and anybody can go and see them. And I left them there. Then I felt very sad. I, I remember turning at the door and looking back at the little pile of her things that I'd brought. And and then when I went outside, I cried because I felt that I had left her. I'd really left her behind, even though by then she'd been dead for probably 20 years already, maybe more. And speaking of her diaries, was that something that she passed on to you? Cause... No, not, I mean, it was in a, I don't even remember where we found them. The household was moved after she died. I had two sisters and they got some and I got some of stuff and a brother who got some stuff. And, but I don't think that anyone had looked at them except me because again, I was interested. I mean, my, I have one sister who certainly would have, maybe both sisters would have, but when I found them, I was just so thrilled. But, Mm -hmm. you know, Adam, when I was younger too, younger people aren't always interested. I I get that. They're in the middle of living their lives and, you know, they don't necessarily care about their mother's diary or their mother's life or their grandmother's life. It takes a certain amount of years for one to get interested because it doesn't seem real to you when you're young. You think, well, they didn't, you know, it's so irrelevant in some ways that Mm -hmm. you had 
grandparents and that your grandparents were young people or even children. So it's really a treasure. You just don't ever throw anything away. Yeah, I, <laughs> I know, no, but I do. I know exactly what you mean because I feel like, especially over the last like five, ten-ish years, I have felt that way. Like my parents have been they they've gotten really good at like not emptying their house, but like the clearing out. Of, yeah. yeah, just basically because they didn't want you know God forbid something were to happen. They're like, we don't want to leave you guys with. <laughs> Just this pile of stuff. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Which is in reality, though. So I'm the youngest of four siblings. And I wouldn't say all of us are packer ass, but I would say we all, Mm -hmm. like, we would definitely, there are lots of things. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, absolutely. I would take that from your mom. Like, don't get rid of that for sure. But I'm just laughing, thinking about my mom hearing this, us saying, don't ever throw anything away. And then she's like, I just don't want any of this clutter. Let's just get rid of all of it. But um, yeah, one gets it, one gets tired of the clutter, but it turns out that some of that clutter is absolutely gold. Yeah. And uh, an archivist that at the library in Iowa said to me, "Well, Cornelia, you know, do you have like letters between your grandparents? They must have written a lot of letters." And I hadn't thought about that. I didn't have them, and I thought, "Darn, where did they go? You know, did my grandmother throw them out? Did my mother?" throw them out at some point saying who, whoever wants because think of the written record that people before us left behind if only we could get there all the letters that must have been written back and forth so speaking of that on on your website it mentions that you have like over 250 of your own uh like diaries so do you still have all of those as well no uh i've there the library there at the Schlesinger Library, which to my delight wanted them. Now my my diaries are closed and not open to anybody to read until the year 2070. My mother's are open and all of her papers are open, but I write them and send them off to the library after I get a few together. So I'm actually on volume 252. <laughs> Incredible. That is amazing. But Adam, before I found that the library wanted them, which was, of course, the most thrilling thing that's ever happened to me, I think, was for them to want them. I kept them in my filing cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, I would get worried because I, I wanted to be able to write whatever I wanted and not hurt anybody's feelings. And, you know, what if I dropped dead and I had written something that I could never explain to somebody? So... I urge anybody to keep a diary because it's such a helpful thing to do, but make sure you have a lock and key and, you know, or decide, do you, do you want somebody to see this or don't you, you know, your grand, if you can skip a generation, probably anybody could write anything. Mm-hmm. 252. Wow. That is incredible. That is so amazing. Okay. So the last question for you, I always ask people, who come on uh, to end the show with a recommendation. It could be a book that you love. It could be a recipe. It could be, um, you know, a movie that you've recently seen. Just something that you'd like to recommend that people enjoy after they listen to this conversation. Hmm. Well, I don't know if there are any people who love fountain pens out there. My first guest, Mallory O'Meara, she's a good friend of mine. She loves a fountain pen, so this will be very applicable for her. I think fountain pens are one of the great pleasures of life. And um, you can get, you know, you can get catalogs from pen stores. There's a kind of 
whole world I'm not part of because I'm not a, I don't collect things. I use them, you know, but you can get these catalogs from the, from the pen stores and look at pictures of pens and look at all the different kinds of inks. And I have to add that my grandmother Corney was a teacher of handwriting in the Mason City, Iowa public schools. And she had beautiful handwriting and my mother had beautiful handwriting. And my husband tells me my handwriting is beautiful, although it's a little, not as good as it used to be. But my daughter writes by hand. My granddaughter, who knows if she'll even write cursive. I don't think they even necessarily teach it in schools anymore. Yeah. So is there a, I'm going to make an addendum to the last question, because there like a specific fountain pen that you do like, or is yeah. it just like? <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. Pelican. <laughs> A Pelican fountain pen is absolutely the best fountain pen I've ever used. Now, maybe there are more that are more expensive, though. It's not cheap. Mm-hmm. It always writes. It always flows beautifully. And it's a pleasure to hold in your hand. That's absolutely perfect. I feel like I could talk with you for hours and hours. I, I do, too. It was fun. I enjoyed this so much. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. Passions and Prologues is proud to be an evergreen podcast and was created by Adam Sokol. It was produced by Adam Sokol and Sean Rule Hoffman. And if you are interested in this podcast and any other evergreen podcast, you can go to evergreenpodcast.com to discover all the different stories we have to tell. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.